Spending time with my father and my mom and my sister and my, some with my brother, Lord, and uh, just thank you for the uh, this good, good bread that Pastor has uh, cooked up for us, the fresh bread of life uh, today, Lord, and uh, just thank you for it. May our hearts be open and receptive to the uh, <clears throat> to the Spirit uh, this evening. And um, we thank you for all our friends who are gathered here, and the Butlers, and the Browns, and the Fergusons, and the Lambs, and all these children. But we thank you in Jesus' name, Amen. 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 Lord, yeah, we got a lot of people doing the seasonal thing. That's <coughs> good. Okay, so. Tonight, we get to dig into Jesus the Apostle. Can you all read that okay? Is that, is that in your way? Alright. So we're still in Hebrews 3, verse 1. Still. Still. <laughs> Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the Apostle and High Priest of our Confession. So last week we, we really looked at the front half of this verse. Tonight we're looking at Jesus the Apostle. Jesus our Apostle and High Priest. So as Apostle, remember he, he represents the Father to man. And as High Priest, he represents man to the Father. So these are the... These are the nuances of these two roles. As Apostle, he is the ambassador of Father God to man, and as High Priest, he represents man to God. He intercedes for man with God. Okay? Now, <coughs> the way the writer of Hebrews compares these two roles is, as Apostle, he compares the Son to Moses. And as high priest, he compares him to Aaron. Okay? So, in these two roles, the son has combined. And he's greater than both. So, as we proceed, we'll look at the comparison with Moses. But before we even get there, we need to understand apostle. Which is why we're really digging into this. So, We've all pretty much heard this. Apostolos is from apostello, which means to send. So, apostle has 
I mean, my goodness. As simple as a scent one, okay? Now, in, in charismatic circles, um, Pentecostal circles, charismatic circles, most other evangelicals shy away from, they'll acknowledge that there are teachers in the body of Christ, they'll talk about evangelists, but pretty much everybody gets to be a pastor. You know, we just decided we'll stay safe and we'll paint everybody as, as a sheep garter, and, and it's okay to be a pastor. God forbid, don't call yourself an apostle because we know you're a false one because the gifts ended when all the apostles died, all 12 of them, even though there were 13 until one hung himself, and then there were 12, and then, you know, Paul came along, so you got 14. And it, if you add them all up, you know how many apostles are mentioned in the New Testament? 22, I think, was my last count. You know how many evangelists are named? One. One evangelist. Philip. One evangelist, 22 apostles. God forbid you call yourself an apostle. But here's the other problem is, is that in the independent, uh, non-denominational, charismatic assembly, the apostle is the man with the vision for the house. He's the, well, you know, evangelicals get lead pastors. Us charismatics, we get apostles. So the apostle is this big-time administrator. And, and so you know who the guy is because he's got the office in the car. And not what you see, what Paul describes as an apostle in Corinthians. And, you know, last in the train, and homeless, and persecuted, and, you know, barely scrounging by. In our simplicity, we can define an apostle as a missionary. But really it goes beyond that. So, in the five-fold ministry, if you remember from two weeks ago, Jesus, in a judicial edict, said to his generation that he was going to send them apostles and prophets, because they were saying, well, if we'd been alive when the prophets were around, we wouldn't have done like our fathers did and killed them. And he said, you're sitting there painting their graves. Don't tell me you wouldn't have killed them. So I'll tell you what, I'll send you apostles and prophets, and you're going to kill them. So, on you will come all the blood from Abel to Zacharias. All the blood of the Old Testament, all the prophets killed, uh, will be on this generation. And you'd be hard-pressed to read the Old Testament and come up with the term apostle. So, where does this term apostle come from? Also, we see this strong correlation between apostles and prophets. Right, so the the uh, Ephesians. Go to Ephesians real quick. So you're familiar with the road, though. So. Oh, you're familiar with the road. Okay, good. <laughs> so yes, Ephesians chapter two, verse nineteen. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. No household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So you, you, you see this strong correlation. Now the fivefold ministry, apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, pastor, okay? And they each have their own nuance and their own roles, and I don't think those functions are a once and forever. If you work it through, you'll see that, that Saul of Tarsus was called as a teacher, and he went, and Barnabas, who was a prophet, brought him to Antioch, and they began that school in Antioch. And as they were ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit said, Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And they laid hands on them, and they sent them out. After that, you see, 
Saul and Barnabas referred to as apostles. And you, you see that when Paul writes and he says, well, when we went to the elders in Jerusalem, they saw that the ministry to the uncircumcision was granted us, and they gave us the right hand of fellowship. In other words, they recognized we were apostles as they were apostles. Okay? And once you toss in Barnabas, you're up to 14. I'm telling you, you got a lot of apostles. Okay? So, um, there's this strong correlation, so it's not surprising that Moses becomes the example of, of, this, um, of this ambassador, this sent one. Well, wasn't Moses an ambassador for God? I mean... Okay, so I'm going to go to them, and, I'm, and they're going to say, well, who sent you? What's your name? You know, and there's this interplay where Moses is relying on the spiritualism that he had, taught, he had been taught in Egypt, and, and God answers by breathing on him, <laughs> in essence, uh, with Yahweh. And then he gives them these, these signs. And Lord willing, next week we'll get into these signs. He says, well, here's a neat trick. Stick your hand in your coat. I mean, is God a practical joker? Yeah. Moses sticks his hand in his coat, he pulls it out, and he's got leprosy. Well, thanks a lot. You know, I stop by the burning bush, and I get leprosy. <laughs> okay, put it back in your coat, he pulls it back out, no leprosy. Okay, put your stick down. I mean, what because you can come on, give me a break. It turns into a snake, and then he says, well, grab it. I mean, what's going on? And then he says, well, if that's not enough, turn their water to blood. That'll get their attention. So why those three signs? Why leprosy? Why the snake into a rod? And why water to blood? We'll get into that, Lord willing, next week. So, wow. he's a sent one. But it's beyond just sent as a, mass, as a messenger, it's an ambassador. To act as an ambassador. Someone who has the full authority of the one who commissioned him. So as we talked last week, I think it was Brian that had said... You, um, you know, if you attack an ambassador, it's an act of war. If if we're if there's an, an ambassadorial mission, you know, if, if you're in a foreign country and you go to the American embassy, you're on American soil. That's as if you were inside the United States. The same here, you know, the Spanish embassy. If, if you're in the Spanish embassy, you are no longer, in essence, in America, you are for all practical purposes, in Spain, okay? So that's how ambassadorial things work. This term is synonymous with presbutes, or, or ambassador. We see this where in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we are ambassadors for Christ, okay? It's also used in uh, Ephesians 6.20. Um, and Paul says, For which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul the Apostle is an ambassador. Okay? You get it? Alright. Guess what? Well, we are ambassadors as well. We are ambassadors. We pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. Bear in mind that we pray you in Christ's stead is written in an epistle written to the church which is in Corinth that was out of line. So, we evangelize the unsaved. We are ambassadors of the Father's house to our errant brothers, when we call them to be reconciled to God. Now you could apply that to the unsaved, but it has, it has real import when you save and rescue a brother from his sin. Okay? Because we're talking about the household. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are therefore ambassadors, presbyutes for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Okay? So you see how that representation goes? 
uh, when, when you're ministering or when you're acting as a pastor or when you're acting as a mercy, you're, you're, or as an intercessor, you're praying for the individual. God, have mercy on this individual. Help this person. Uh, bring them home, God. But when you're talking to the person as an ambassador, you're like, look, you need to come home to God. Now, you see the difference there. Different difference. All right. It's also synonymous with Achelos, a messenger, an angel. So, in his pre-incarnate form, the Son is known as the angel of the Lord. Okay? And, I mean, you can go through that study on your own, but the angel of the Lord, or the angel of his presence, the angel of his face, he who has seen me has seen the Father, that's the Son. That's a Christophany. That's a pre-incarnate appearance of Messiah in the Old Testament. Um, and so, you know, you get a messenger show up and an angel show up. I mean, an angel's a messenger, but, you know, when an angel shows up, you know something's going down, right? It's not just, message for you, sir. You know? <laughs> Apostle was the title given to those sent from the Jewish leaders with encyclical letters to the synagogues and Jewish communities. So Jesus wasn't inventing a term. He was using a term that was, that was well known to his contemporaries. This was the term. So if the, if the uh, Sanhedrin had an edict that needed to go out to the diaspora, if the Jewish elders had letters or instructions that needed to go out to the different Jewish communities, those sent with that authority and that letter to impose that regulation were known as apostles. Now, knowing this, this next verse should make a lot more sense to you. I persecuted this way to the death, this is Acts 22, 4-6, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, for from them I received letters to the brothers. Saul of Tarsus was an apostle of the Sanhedrin. So as I mentioned last week, he was a false apostle with regard to the kingdom of God because he was persecuting that way to the death. I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone round about me. He did not receive a calling to apostleship or, or the um, anointing of apostleship in this encounter. Jesus gave him a commission, and what he would do, and the first thing he did, he went out as an evangelist. He went into the synagogue and preached Christ unto them. And he got him so upset that 40 men decided they weren't going to eat until they killed him, and he had to go over the wall. Was that Damascus or was that Jerusalem? Yeah, that might have been Jerusalem. Anyhow, he still had to go over the wall <laughs> to get out of Damascus, right? <laughs> Galatians 1.1 Paul, an apostle... Not from men, nor through man. But through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You see how he changed. You see this change. He had been an apostle from men through man. But now no longer he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's a sent one, an ambassador of Christ. Okay? I thought that was pretty neat. <clears throat> This term, apostle, you get to find it in the Old Testament in one verse in the Septuagint, which is the Greek of the Old Testament. Okay? And it's in 1 Kings 14.6. And it was so when, I, when 
Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in at the door, that he said, Come in, thou wife of Jeroboam. Why feignest thou thyself to be another? For I am sent in the Septuagint, that's apostolos. In the Hebrew, it is shalach, to thee with heavy tidings. I'm sent to thee with heavy tidings, to be a sent one from God. So uh, once again, you see this connection between the prophet and the apostle. Okay? So here's a prophet saying he is a sent one. This is our use. I love it when we can find these things because it helps us get a full counsel of God view of this word. So now we have the Hebrew handle. Shalach. Which means to send, stretch forth, or get rid of. It shows up in the Hebrew Old Testament about 850 times. So it's used quite a bit. The most frequent use of it, though, suggests the sending of someone or something as a messenger to a particular place. And this is what we find with apostles. Apostles are sent in a particular time to a particular place. Paul said, I'm going to preach Christ where no one's preached, right? I'm going to stay inside of my metron, my area of authority. You will find um, apostolic anointings over um, functions and, and um, you know, types of ministry. This is why you see a lot of apostolic stamp in parachurch ministries. Because these, these ministers are sent to plow a field in a particular area that no one else is really maximizing on. Does that make sense? Okay? Um, but they're not necessarily people you see on TV. They may be. I'm not saying you can't be an apostle and be on TV. I'm just saying. Just saying. It, just, it, see, it used to be in the church. In, 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 it used to be in the church that, you know, you, elder wasn't a good enough term. Bishop sounded better. I mean, it's the same term, elder, you know. It's a bishop. So, you could be a pastor, but now I'm the bishop. You know? And, and, and then, in the 80s, um, bishop just wasn't, you know, so we had the whole prophetic movement. So now we had the prophets. Interesting enough, though, in these ministries that were centered on the prophetic and had their prophets... When apostle became the end thing, all of a sudden, all these prophets were turning into apostles. It was the hot word, you know? The apostleship calling. You know, all these books, and, and all the bookstores are full, full, full of apostle stuff. Okay? They're gifts from Jesus Christ. There are apostles in our day, and they're sent ones. Okay? I don't know why I got on that tirade, but just so you understand... Would you, would you say then that um, someone who is sent to a struggling church to help them would be considered an apostle? So, so the five-fold ministry should, should show itself either indigenously in the local church. Now, when we talk about the local church, we're a church, but we're not the local church. The local church is the church in Hampton Roads, in our region, the body of Christ. And in, our, in the body of Christ, in our region, there should be apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. Okay? And, and so, yes, um, very often what you see apostles doing is, if there is an area struggling, like Philip is up there and he's like, well, I've got something on my hands I've never seen before. 
and the apostles come in and help establish the church. Or a work breaks out and they go in and they help ordain elders. But they're not the only ones who ordain elders. You have elders who are voted in by the congregation, by the assembly. So, so it's a yes. It's it's a so. But these these kind of gifts, Jesus. This is this is so the whole body comes fitly formed together, right? In every part, supplying what it's supposed to. So these ministries are supposed to come up so that the body of Christ learns how to shepherd, learns how to evangelize, learns how to teach, learns how to go, learns how to be an ambassador, learns how to be prophetic. And that's what these ministries are supposed to do. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Okay. So, all right, Shalah. First use. So one of the principles of scriptural interpretation, and you don't build a church on it, but... Anytime God uses a term the first time, it is loaded. And look at the first use of this term sent out. <laughs> Genesis 3.22 Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, the first use of the sending out was man's expulsion from the garden as a consequence of sin and to block his reach for physical immortality while spiritually dead. This is why I said last week that cell death was programmed in the human body. That's how the body regenerates itself. The way that his body was kept alive <clears throat> the tree of life. So it was possible for his physical body to remain alive while his spirit was dead. You following me? Ever since, mankind has been chasing for a way of remaining physically alive without paying attention to what the necessity of a spiritual life. Now, any, any magic bullet remedy you've ever come into, and it goes all the way back to the fountain of youth, you know, chasing the fountain of youth, or um, so we, we joke about the ancients and, and the conquistadores looking around for the fountain of youth, and where's that at? And yet, and, and not too long ago, um, uh, you know, you had very wealthy people getting themselves frozen. You know, signing papers to have themselves frozen and, and be kept in suspended, suspended animation for the hopes of, you know, someone will come up with a cure later on. Well, they just recently froze someone and brought them back, <clears throat> testing it out. A, a new form of cryotherapy. But actually being able to get them frozen, and come back out, and they still be alive. All pursuit of physical immortality. If we, or Adam and Eve, had remained physically alive, but stayed spiritually dead, would that have made them, or man, unredeemable? That would have interfered with God's plan for redemption. And it would have been in direct contradistinction to what God said, the day you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. Spiritually, he died that day. A day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. Adam did not live out the first day of his life. He died short of a thousand years. In God's eyes, his body died that day too. 
So, so yes. The Father reversed this through Jesus, his apostle, and Jesus' apostles sent to call people to partake of the true tree of life, Jesus Christ. So the first sending out, so man wanting to reach out in his unrighteous state, God reverses this by God reaching out and through Jesus making immortality available. The, the picture, again, we're talking about the holiest of all. So some of these things you just have to feel. I mean, you could try to parse them out logically, but just feel it. Feel the rhythm. God plants a garden, and there's a tree, and that tree gives them life. They can eat of everything but the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and that tree gives them life. When they sin, God takes them out of the garden. Now, they're in the garden by grace. Adam came from outside of the garden. God took the ground from outside of the garden and made Adam, breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, and then he placed him in the garden to work it. So being in the garden was completely by grace. He's not indigenous to the garden. God brought him there. When he sins, God sends him out of the garden and he places the cherubim. Remember who the cherubim are? This, the, the cherubim are, are the, the... Well, what's on the mercy seat? The cherubs facing each other. Their wings outstretched. But you only see two. You see a bigger manifestation of this when it comes into the temple. Then you have two very large olive cherubs covered in gold that cover the ark that's covered in cherubs. You have all four of the living creatures. That's who the cherubim are, the living creatures. One sword, four living creatures. What's on the veil of the temple? Cherubim. Woven into the veil of the temple are the cherubim guarding the way of life into the Father's house, the holiest of all. That veil is the flesh of Jesus Christ. He parted the veil, and now we have access to the Father's house. So you see how this, these things, these patterns, repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. This is why I say the true tree of life, Jesus Christ. I believe that there is an actual tree of life that bears fruit, and we'll see that in the new heavens and the new earth. It never went away. God, I, I believe God made a dimensional rift with that sword. We see it in the new heaven and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, and it gives, it gives its fruit and seasons. The, the leaves are for the healing of the nations. This is the second occurrence of the sending forth, okay? And it's in the account of um, the ark, Genesis 8. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. And it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth, so he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. And he waited yet another seven days. And again, he sent forth, that's our word, Shalach, the dove out of the ark. So, Genesis 8, 11. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Verse 12, Then he waited another seven days, and he sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Okay? This is a marvelous account, and it's loaded for bear. And I'll give you the notes if you want them, but we're just going to go through it rather. Ready? Okay? So this is the dove and the raven. 
Ravens are unclean birds, symbolic of evil spirits. Jesus gave the twelve apostles power over unclean spirits. They're an all-night prayer session, and he calls the twelve out, and he gives them power over unclean spirits. Noah sent forth the dove from him. Unclean spirits do the Lord's bidding. We can see this, 1 Samuel 16, 14, that, that Saul was troubled from an evil spirit from the Lord. Uh, in 1 Kings 22, 19-23, we see the, the whole congress of, of the Benai Elohim, and God says, who will be a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets? And one of the evil spirits says, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll be that one. Okay? So, yeah. So they... <coughs> they have to do his bidding, but they don't abide with him. The Father sent the Holy Spirit from him. Joel 2, 28 and 29. The restless dove. So the dove, remember the dove this is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So this is what we're learning. Now, so, so here Noah, after this degradation done to the planet, sends out a raven and sends out a dove. So we dealt with the raven. The dove found no place, no, no, no rest for her foot, verse 8 said. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not abide Okay? It didn't live in. It rested on, but did not live in. Remember, Saul lost his anointing. The Holy Spirit left Saul, and he was troubled from an evil spirit from the Lord. David, after his whole uh, Uriah incident and Bathsheba incident, prayed that the Holy Spirit not be taken from him. So in the Old Testament, the dove has no place to put her feet. Until Jesus came out of the baptismal waters of the Jordan, the dove had no place to abide. Again, do you notice these are some things you just have to feel in your heart. You can't, I mean, I'm trying to lay it here logically, but it's it, a flood over the whole earth and some old guy sending a dove out of the ark. Is Jesus coming out of the baptismal water? Yes. He comes out of the water, then the dove lands. There's a place to land, okay? I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. John 1.32. This is John the Baptist's testimony. Upon, the, God had told him, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him. You see that? And remaining, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. John 1.33. Okay? So John sees this. It's a vision. Jesus comes out. Jesus is known to him. This is his first cousin. Jesus first cousin. It's his cousin. Jesus comes out to get baptized. John looks up and he has this vision of what's going to occur, and he knows it's the Messiah. That's why he says. So he sees the Holy Spirit. Now, whether he saw the Holy Spirit like a dove on him or not. He just saw the Holy Spirit come down on Jesus and remain. So he sees this in the Spirit, and then he declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then Jesus comes up to John and says, Baptize me. What John knows now that this is the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Not something that was available in the Old Testament economy. So Jesus the Apostle has the abiding Holy Spirit. He comes to him, Matthew 3.14, and he says, 
I need to be baptized. And John says, I need to be baptized by you. What's John asking for? Holy Spirit. Yeah. John the Baptist <clears throat> is asking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is going to give. He's just seen this. And this he hasn't taken him to the water yet. There's been no dove, no voice from heaven, nothing. This is... God revealed this to John. John now knows Jesus is the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes up, and John says, I, I, I can't even untie your sandal. What are you talking about? You need to baptize me. I've been waiting for you my whole life. And Jesus says, suffice it for now to complete righteousness, right? Look at this. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet who ever lived. No prophet ever lived as great as John the Baptist. John the Baptist had the Holy Spirit upon him in utero, from his mother's womb. John the Baptist had not experienced the day without the anointing of the Holy Spirit. This tells us that the, anoint, the greatest anointing available of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament economy does not compare, does not match, does not equate to the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. Because John is asking Jesus for this baptism. He lived his entire life in the anointing of the Holy Spirit and recognized he needed the baptism of the Holy Spirit Jesus would bring. I think that is a startling truth. Do you think he got it? Was he baptized in the Holy Spirit? No. It wasn't available. Jesus hadn't died yet. John died. So the olive branch, the, the dove shows up with the olive branch. As proof, the waters had receded. The olive branch is representative of the anointing tree, Zechariah 4, verses 3 through 6. The Holy Spirit slathers us with His oil, His anointing. So the olive tree, olive oil, is representative of the Holy Spirit. The dove is representative of the Holy Spirit. So here, the dove shows up with the olive branch, okay? The anointing. The true anointing is coming. The full anointing is coming. Genesis 1, and Genesis 8, 11, by the way, is where the universal symbol for peace came from. The dove with the olive branch in its beak comes directly from that. I, I'm sure there are many people who sit in the UN and have no idea that they're looking at a biblical image. <coughs> Receding waters. John said that Messiah must increase and that he must decrease. What did John baptize with? Water. Water. The waters are receding. The Spirit abide when the waters had receded. Jesus, in Jesus, the Holy Spirit arrived with an olive branch. The waters were receding. Jesus was increasing. John was decreasing. The, the, the baptism of repentance, the ceremonial washing of water baptism was receding in importance. It's not gone away. It's a discipleship um, uh, sacrament in the body of Christ, absolutely. But it has, much, it has much more to do with the commitment of the soul than it does the salvation of the Spirit. The salvation of the Spirit is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The experience of a prayer language or, or the manifestation of the Spirit is the evidence of the baptism. It is not the baptism itself. To call speaking in tongues the baptism of the Holy Spirit 
is like standing on the shore soaking wet and calling that baptism. No. When you went in the water and got under it, that's when you got baptized. Being wet on the shore is the result of it. Okay? So we've been calling speaking in tongues, being wet on the shore, baptism. It's not. It's the result of the baptism. Does that make sense? The waters were receding. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was coming. The abiding dove. Noah sent forth the dove, which returned not again. So finally, the waters had receded. The dove went out. It didn't come back. The promise of the Father has come. Jesus had told them to abide in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father had come. Well, it came on the day of Pentecost. Jesus has poured out the Holy Spirit. We see that in Acts 2.33. The anointing now abides in us. The Holy Spirit has found a place of rest. It abides in us. 1 John 20. First uh, John 2, verses 20 and 27. So, the Holy Spirit has found a place to rest in the body of Christ. Again, note the pattern and the rhythm. Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate Word of God, comes out of the waters, and the Holy Spirit, like a dove, comes upon Him. And John said, you know, God told him, whoever you see the Holy Spirit descend and abide, He's the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Well, what are you? You're the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit will no more lift off you than He will lift off the Son of God. Understand? You're the body of Christ. <laughs> I, I think that's exciting. Amen. I'm, I'm excited. Alright. So, here's Moses. Deuteronomy 5, verse 5. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. So Moses made Yahweh known to Israel. Moses made Yahweh known to Israel. Remember? What's your name? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His was, will be. That's who Moses made known. Psalm 103, verses 6 and 7. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord, that word Lord, is Yahweh. Moses made Yahweh's ways known. Okay? Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. <laughs> God spoke directly to the people, and they went, Ah! You go see that thing up there. I don't want to know that. I'm terrified, scared. So, but Moses said, The ultimate answer to that prayer is the prophet. So this is when Jesus, again, the, the repeat pattern. When, when Jesus says, If any man thirst, let him come to me. And he, this he spake of the Holy Spirit. This is John 7, I think 34 and 35, somewhere around there, in the middle of the feast. And then everyone said, Is this the prophet? That's the prophet they're talking about. They're talking about the Deuteronomy 18 prophet. Of course, in the mind of his contemporaries, there was Messiah the King, and then there was the Prophet. And then there was confusion between the Prophet and Elijah who was to come. And so, John shows up and they're all confused. John shows up and they say, are you, are you the Messiah? Jesus shows up and they say, are you the Prophet? And 
Not knowing it's all the same guy. Prophet and king. I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their brothers, and I will put my word in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. <coughs> so, what I see my father doing, I do. What I hear my father say, I say. And whoever will not listen to my word, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require of him. I'm not here to condemn you. You have Moses. He condemned you already. You see how Jesus now... Reverbs on this stuff. Moses made who known? Yahweh. Moses made Yahweh known. John 1, verses 17 and 18 on New King James. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God in any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. To know Yahweh is to know His law. To know the Father is to know grace and truth. See this phrase, He has declared Him? Let's just break out this verse 18 and look at it graphically. The Son's declaration. He, the unique, one-of-a-kind, only-born Son, declared. He reveals, unfolds, tells as a teacher all about him, Father God, in whose embrace the Son dwells. That's what that word bosom means. It means embraced. <laughs> Consider Jesus. John 6, 41 and 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? <clears throat> Verse 43 and 44. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Matthew 11, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now we see the distinction. Moses, a servant in the house, Jesus, a son, over his own house. Moses makes the Lord known. So think of, oh, I don't know. Um, God forbid, Downton Abbey. <laughs> you ever seen Downton Abbey? <laughs> you know, the high houses of England, you have the staff and you have the family. And the staff had their own pecking order and the family had their own pecking order. So if a new staff member came on board, those in charge of the staff made known the Lord's wishes. The Lord of the house. This is how they run the house. This is what your boss, employer, ruler wants. But if you have family in the house, don't do that. Dad doesn't like that. It's different. Understand? Jesus makes the Father known. Now watch this. 
right on the tail of this declaration that all everything has been handed to him. Hey, Helena, everything's been handed to him. No one knows the Son but the Father, and no one knows the Father but the Son, and, and anyone who the Son chooses to reveal him. So when look what happens when the Son reveals the Father to you. Ready? You remember what, what follows? The verses that come? <laughs> come to me all ye all who labor and are he heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. <clears throat> when Paul confronted Peter, he said, you tried to put on these Gentile brothers rules and regulations our fathers couldn't even bear. Well, what rules and regulations were those? The law, the revelation of Yahweh. The rules and regs of the house. By comparison, knowing the Father's heart is a light burden. Understanding the Father. Our rest is found in the revelation of the Father's heart. Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest. So, as a peek ahead, in Hebrews, if this pattern is true, if the Apostle Jesus makes known the Father's heart, and knowing the Father's heart brings us to rest in Him, to abide in Him, to rest from our labors and rely on His works, then... We, could, we should kind of see this correlation in Hebrews, you think? Bless you. Hebrews, bless you again. <laughs> Hebrews 3, it's okay. Hebrews 3.1 begins, Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our profession. Hebrews 4.1 Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest. See it? It's all about being embraced by the Father, not working your way into the house. That's all I got. I'm <laughs> so when the Bible talks so heavily about the burden of the law and all the struggle there, and then this this is all light walking with Jesus, it's because it's this relationship, it's relationship. with knowing his heart. It's the relationship. It's so much easier than being under the yeah. nasty lordship. Absolutely. Absolutely. Watch this thing play out. John 14, verses 15 through 18. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, <clears throat> relationship first. We're not doing it out of fear to avoid consequence. We're doing it out of love. Right? I mean, how many things do we do that we, we call it general politeness? And I don't mean to make light of, of, of His commandments, but, you know, we didn't... When we sat at the table, we didn't put our elbows on the table and we didn't smack our lips. Now, we were taught that by commandment. But it became a thing of love and respect. I mean, my mom doesn't like that. I love my mom, so I will, you know, chew my mouth closed. That makes sense? I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Forever. The dove has found a place to abide. There is no losing the Holy Spirit for a New Testament saint. There is 
greeting the Holy Spirit. There is resisting the grace of God. There, is, there are all kinds of things where we negate what the Holy Spirit is doing in us, but He never leaves. He's in it. Forever. The body... Jesus of Nazareth was the incarnation of the Son of God. The body of Christ is the incarnation of the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? He has forever welded Himself to the body of Christ. Just as just as the Son of God forever welded himself to the human form of Jesus of Nazareth. That's like, God is in you! <laughs> I can't shout loud enough in this house. Even the Spirit of truth whom the, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. An orphan doesn't know his daddy. But the son makes sure we know our daddy. Christ is the son in the father's house. How do you teach us to pray? God Almighty, all-powerful, you whom we must obey. No. Our Father starts with relationship. Dad, I'm pleading to my Father. Now, if I've been able to drive, my dad was alive when I was allowed to drive, <laughs> and had the wherewithal to provide a ride, then I, I dare say my trust in my Father providing me with a set of keys if I needed a ride Hey, Dad, can I borrow the car? I mean, like falling out of the bed, right? There's no sweat. There's no, I've got to renew my mind to, to get rid of doubt. But, oh, my goodness, I'm absent of a car and need to plead with God for supply of a vehicle. Oh, I'm just, I'm really waiting on the Lord. I, I just don't have any. I just ask your dad for it. Right? There's a fleet of vehicles out here. It still amazes me. So, okay, it's a long time. I was 18 years old, I walked seven miles a day, three and a half to work, three and a half back, six days a week, and I was walking on Broad Street in Richmond. If you've ever been on Broad Street in Richmond, it's not a nice road to walk on. I mean, it's very, very busy, hot in the summer, walking as fast as I, I could do 3.7 miles and 40 minutes walking. So that's a flat out walk, right? I mean, I think my bottom was about that far off the ground. I would go by like I don't know, four or five car dealerships. And I used to think, it'd be nice if someone saw this industrious young man booking his way to work and would come out and say, you know, here's a car for you. And that was the thought. You know how many cars God's given me? I mean, it wasn't while I was walking to the Arby's, but over time, it was like, it got to a place, it got to the place where we got written up by the, by the uh, HOA um, because we had too many cars and we were parking in the yard. You know, not, not enough room to receive it. Okay? And so, when I come home from work and I pull up and, I, and I'm like, yeah, okay, it's the first world, but still. I think of those days when I walk to work and I think, how, how do I wind up with a fleet of vehicles? And then, you know, my kids own them, but still, you get the point, right? Dad! Our Father which art in heaven... Hallowed be your name. 
See, relationship first, worship second. How do you approach God? Is He your Father first, or is He God Almighty first? Because He's both. But Jesus acknowledged, Lord, teach us, teach us how to pray. Our prayer life goes better when we acknowledge our relationship to our Heavenly Father first versus come as a supplicant to the almighty power of the universe. It shortens the space and increases the love. You understand? The spirit of adoption cries, Abba, Father, I will not leave you orphaned. I will come to you. The Holy Spirit's cry in our heart cries out to the Father all the time. Is the Holy Spirit called Son? No. And yet, yet that Spirit in us calls out to God. Galatians 4.6 The Spirit of the Son is in our hearts crying, Abba, Father. What got birthed in you was the heart of Jesus toward His Father. The heart of Jesus that said, well, we'll see it. The heart of Jesus that was obedient to His Father to the death is in your heart. That's who's in your heart. Not the I can't, I don't want to, impossible, don't know you, can't feel you. No. No, 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 no. It's the Spirit of the Son that's in your heart. And His first cry in your heart is, Abba, Father, acknowledging that relationship. You want to see the Son crying out to the Father? Go to the garden. Mark 14, verse 36. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. How does Jesus start His prayer? Abba. Father, how did He teach us to pray? Our Father. Abba, Father, the cry of the Son is relationship first. All things are possible for you. Acknowledgement of rulership and power second. Remove this cup from me. Now comes the request. This is how Jesus prayed. This is one of the most intense, the most intense prayer of his entire life. Relationship, rulership, request, submission. Righteous submission. Yet not what I will, but what you will. It's like the children of Israel said, we know God can get us out of this fire. But you know what, King? If we die in that fire, He's still God. And we're not bowing down. Not what I will, but what you will. This is the cry of the Son. Jesus, the Apostle, reveals the Father to us. That's what He does. Consider Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. He is the ambassadorial party to the Father's heart. And when He reveals the Father's heart to us, we find rest because we have come home. Amen? Amen.